pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that, that we've gathered here today, Lord, for one purpose, and that's to bring you honor and glory. This is, that's to really to just be embraced by you and to experience your presence together. So we bless you that we get to look at your word today. We, we get your word to look at us, Lord, and, and I pray, Lord, that you've called us sheep and, and, and we're so easily distracted. I, I just pray that, Spirit, that you just put a blanket over us so that we can be still and know that he's God, and that we would be able to really hear the still, small voice today speaking into our life. Lord, so many wonderful things to extract out of this portion of the Bible, and, and Lord, it, it shouldn't go on deaf ears, but it shouldn't just go into ears, but it should sink into the heart, and, and we pray, Father, that your truths would sink into the heart today, that it would make us those vessels of honor that brings so much glory to you and reflect the goodness of your grace and salvation to a lost, dark, dying world. We give you all the glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37, that's where we're going to be today. Book of Genesis, chapter 37. Remember what I shared last week, that, that a quarter of the book of Genesis was really focused on this individual that we're looking at today, Joseph. And I, you know, if the Holy Spirit decided that so much of the portion of this book needs to be focused on this individual and what God was able to do with this individual, I think we really got to open our hearts to the faithfulness of God and what he's able to do with the heart that's open to him. So as we looked at this, now remember, we left off last week. His brothers hated him because of envy. He had these dreams. He had preference of the father. He had all these things going on in his life. And all this envy built in them that when he came to check on them, they took him, stripped his coat off him, and they threw him in a pit, life in a pit. Sometimes our lives are in a pit. Dark, alone, you know, betrayed, hurt, falsely accused, whatever. You know, life in a pit. But, but what do you do? with life in the pit. Well, we remember that he knew that God was with him, and we're going to see that. That's a constant theme of Joseph's life, that God was with him, and that should be the difference maker. If it isn't, we got to ask ourselves some questions. But, but God was with him. But the bottom line is, is there is something going on here that, that we can see because we see it from a pan back view. We see the whole picture. He's living it, but we get to see the whole thing. And so what that does, that encourages me that when my circumstances are so bad, so adverse, when my life's in the pits, whatever it might be, is that I got to make sure that I'm just choosing to walk closely with Jesus, honor him the best of my ability, and trust that he's in control. And there's a bigger picture going on than what I see. There's always a bigger picture going on in our lives than what we see. All right, remember what Jesus said. I shared this last week, John 13, I think, verse 7. What I do now thou knowest not, semicolon, right? Semicolon, pause. But you will know hereafter. So that semicolon pause could be six months, could be a year, could be five years, could be 10 years. Who knows how long of a period of time, but we will know how hereafter. And I'm going to tell you what, when we get to heaven someday, God's going to unravel the whole thing and show us the big picture. We're going to be blown away by the wisdom and the awesomeness of God and how he used our lives down here, especially when things were the hardest, when things were the most difficult. That's why just keep your heart open to the Lord. So we're picking up in Genesis 37. 
And, and we're in verse 24. They took him, they cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Lone, dry, wrong, all that stuff. And look at these brothers. Look at these brothers. And look what they do. And they sat down to eat bread. All right, lunchtime, man. We took care of him. Let's just eat. You know, so they throw him in the pit. I mean, you could just see the condition they're in. Now, we don't know this from the text that we see in chapter 37, but we're going to find out in chapter 42, it says that he was pleading with them in anguish of soul. So he's down in this pit crying out to them, and they're, they're just shoving down their value meal or whatever they brought with them. So, so we see that we, we could just see the hardness of their heart. And you know what else we can see here is what sin does to a conscience what sin does to a conscience. Their sin was a multitude of sins, but it was an envy that led to a hatred that was going to lead to murder if Reuben hadn't intervened and stopped the whole thing. But that's what sin does. That's what sin does to a conscience. You know what it does? It calluses it. That's why it's so, so important for you and I that we stay sensitive to the truth of God's word and sensitive to the truth of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life, guiding us in the truth and convicting us of sin. I remember back when we were in school, I wasn't one of them, but I had friends that lifted weights and everything, and they'd come in and, you know, we'd be in study hall, and they'd be sitting there sticking pins right through the palm of their hands up by the fingers because what they did was when they were lifting weights, it was creating a wound that really hurt at first. But they would keep wounding that. And as they kept wounding that, calluses would form. And that callus would be something where you could stick a pin right through it and it would be so unfeeling. And that's exactly what sin wants to do to our soul. You know, we choose, we make a rebellious choice to go against God. And, and, and we end up wounding our soul. And maybe it even hurts, but we choose to do it again. And it doesn't hurt as bad the second time. And then before you know it, you continue to go in this wrong direction, doing this wrong thing in the eyes of God. And you know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit's trying to reveal you out of it, but you're going against it. You're choosing to do it because you want to do it. And all of a sudden, you know what you do? Calluses are forming on your heart. And then you know what happens? Just like that, that callus on the hand where you can stick the needle through, all of a sudden you become desensitized. We live in a day today where the church has become desensitized. And the reason it's become desensitized because we're watching things that we shouldn't be watching. We're listening to things that we shouldn't be listening to. And we're involved in things that we shouldn't be involved in. And it, I'm not even necessarily saying it's not because we're not saved, but we're not experiencing the best that God has to offer our lives. And one of the best things any Christian can do in their life ever, it's been my best friend from the beginning I got saved, is this wonderful thing called Repentance. It's when the mind comes into agreement with God and chooses to get right with God and the heart turns for God and then God does the rest from there. So we're seeing here that these guys are so calloused and, <coughs> and they just threw them in a pit and, and they sat down to eat their bread and, and they lifted up their eyes and look, behold, a company of the Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh and they're, going, they're heading on their way to Egypt. And Judah, now we're going to see Judah again, but Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? All right, now he's thinking about profit. You know, there's no profit in that. He's thinking about some personal profit. He says, come, let us sell him 
to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh and his brethren were content. You know what you see here? You see a victim of, of uh, human trafficking. That's what you're seeing here. Okay, you, you look at that and you can bypass it. I'm gonna mess with this thing. Hold on a minute. But what we see here is we see a, a, a case of human trafficking sold into slavery, sold into Egypt. Out of control, right? So they sell him. And, and look what it says here. He goes, come let us sell him to Ishmaelites and let our hand uh, be, and, and let not our hand be upon him. Look at, for he is our brother. And that should have struck a chord with all of them. Because they were ready to do him wrong. But I believe that there needs to be a connection, there needs to be an association that they recognize that, that the thing they didn't have in common was having the same mother, but what they did have in common was having the same father. You and I have the same father. We need to remember our identity that each one of us have because that's going to affect the way that we treat one another. And even though they were struggling at the time, Joseph was loved of his father. His father loved Joseph. And his brethren were content. Should have been a reminder. These guys don't have the biblical history you and I have to look at. But they had from this point going all the way back to, and let there be light. And if they would attract back all the things that they knew, maybe were written down, at least spoken to them about the truth, because they had a father that was of faith, they were in a lineage of faith, they would have remembered two people that they should have drawn from. So they could have went in a different direction that these people did, and that was Cain and Abel. Same treatment, same heart condition, and they followed the same wrong example. And if it wasn't for Reuben, they would have actually killed him. So we look at what these guys are doing here, and, and then it says here, and then they're passed by the Midianite merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Human traffic, but so Christ-like, betrayed for shekels of silver. Betrayed by his brethren for shekels of silver. And, and, and we look at this, and, and we see here that Psalm 40, 1 through 2 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He heard my cry, the cries that even his brothers ignored, and he brought me up also out of the horrible pit. This was the hand of God on Joseph's life, but the hand of God doesn't always move in the ways of man. He's got one door out of this pit, and it's a door he wouldn't have chosen, but it was one that was chosen for him because there's a bigger picture. Life's got a bigger picture than what you and I see. There's a bigger kingdom picture in our lives than just white picket fence, financial security, living your best life now, leisure, hobbies. There's a bigger picture. God's looking to accomplish greater things. He had no control 
over where he was going, but that one door out of the pit was the door that God opened for him. And it says, and Reuben returned to the pit. So obviously Reuben wasn't there at the time when the deal was made to, for the shekels of silver. He was gone. Remember, he had a rescue mission. He just wanted to tell him to do this. He was going to come back. He was going to get Joseph. He was going to bring Joseph back to his father. Here's the problem with Reuben. When he had the opportunity to do right, he procrastinated because he didn't have the courage to stand up to his brothers who were doing wrong. God's looking for people that have the courage to act righteously in situations that are wrong. And I'm telling you, he came back to that pit and he must have been just overwhelmed with regret. Don't procrastinate with the opportunity God gives you to do what's right. Joseph was not in a pit. And then he tore his clothes, repentance, returned, or sorrow, mourning. And he returned unto his brethren and said, This child is not, and I, whither shall I go? I'm the oldest, I'm responsible for him. And they took Joseph, they took his coat, and they killed the kid of the goats, and they dipped the coat in blood. And they sent the coat of many colors. And they brought it to the father, their father, and said, This have we found. Know not whether it be thy son's coat or not. You know if this is Joseph's? Of course they knew. Everybody knew. It was a special coat. And he knew it. And he said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is no doubt torn in pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth upon his loins, and mourned for his sons many days. This is the cruelest thing. Now, th this is what we, we, we have to remember, is the, these guys chose to allow their father to experience a compound of pain. All right, the last chapter, he lost his nanny, who would have been his one connection to his mother that he didn't know from the time that him, his mom, scammed brother out of the birthright, and he, he, he just went to his uncles, her brothers, for a few days, and, and she said, then you can come back, and they never saw one another again. So, so this, this woman was, was uh, Deborah, she was a uh, kind of a nursemaid, a nanny to him, and, th and then he loses the love of his life. The one that he labored seven years from, and they see him but a day because he loved her so much, Rachel. And then his dad dies. So you, you can think, that all happened in one chapter. I don't know the exact time period, but you can think of, of just the pain of all that loss. And now these brothers are going to allow their father to believe a lie that's going to inflict as much pain, possibly even more pain, than all of those. The loss of a child. It says here that and he's going to mourn for his son many days. The sad thing is, is they let their father believe this lie for 22 years. This was a 22-year lie that they chose to let their father believe. A wounded heart that they allowed to say wounded that they could have healed with truth. Truth always heals. But they let him believe that lie and suffer the pain from it. 
Here's the worst part. And all his sons and all his daughters, so obviously he had Dinah, possibly another daughter, even more, rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I will go down into the grave under my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. What hypocrites. What absolute hypocrites. They're allowing their father to believe a lie that they created, and now they're trying to make him feel better through it. I mean, look at the depths of the hardness of their heart. I mean, it's a hard thing to watch your dad cry. Maybe some of you have never seen your dad cry. But they're watching their father who suffered so much, and they've just compounded to his pain. But you know what's going to happen? It's a 22-year-old lie. But Numbers 32 tells us, be sure sure your sin will find you out, and it's going to. What we experience here in the next few chapters is Joseph's brothers, there's no mention of them, except this next chapter that's kind of weird, this next chapter, chapter 38. I still, you know, I'm about two minutes from teaching it. I don't even know how I'm going to teach it yet, but, but that focuses on Judah and, and, and his sin. But here's the thing about them. There's no mention of them except Judah's sin in the next chapter, but Joseph the innocent, there's much mention. You know what it says about Joseph, the innocent, the one who honored God with his life? It continues to say that Joseph prospered that Joseph prospered. There's no mention of these guys prospering. Why? Because they're living in darkness. They're living out a lie. It's a reminder to me when I look at the contrast of the individuals, two different forms of hearts, that the Bible says, he who covers his sin shall not prosper. But if we confess and forsake, we'll find mercy. That's Proverbs chapter 28. I will go down to the grave under my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him, the death of a child. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt under Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guard. This is what I love. Because loss is painful. Doesn't matter, goes right from a grandmother to a child. Everybody in between, loss is painful. Especially the loss of a child. But what I love about Joseph is Jacob thought he was dead, he was alive. And what I love about the Bible is sometimes in our mind we think they're dead, but they're alive. Because Christ rose again the third day. Because Jesus proved it to us that he's a resurrection and the life. And whosoever believeth in me shall never die. 22 years he's going to put his arms around his son again and recognize and experience the fact my son's not dead. Think about where we're going to be in 22 years. Think about the people we're going to wrap our arms around. Because I'll tell you what, we don't have that much time left. That's good news. If you're saved, if you're not saved, we need to talk after service. This is really bad news. But I want you to imagine someday in the faith, you're going to wrap your arms around them again. And you will be inseparable forever. No more pain. No crying. No sorrow. No death. Former things. 
are passed away. We got life. We got one another. We got Jesus. We got the kingdom, the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. It just is going to be so good. And it can't come quick enough. So keep sharing the gospel with people because somebody out there is going to complete the bride and we, we're going home. Now, all that's recorded about Israel after Joseph was sold really is found here in chapter 38. And this is a crazy chapter. This is one of those chapters as a pastor where you're like, oh, I got to be faithful to the text. But it's just, it's got some truths in it and it's got some PG-13 rating plus in it also, which are always awkward for me. Um, but we'll blast through it, all right? We're going to blast through it just to be faithful to the text, right? It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adamonite whose name was Hira, and, and Judah saw there the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now, big mistake. You didn't marry the Canaanites. This is something that's going to be implemented through New Testament this is something that's implemented in Old Testament. The law of Moses, you find it in Deuteronomy. You find a mistake with Solomon that Nehemiah would even reference later. You write Paul, um, Paul writing about it in his letter to the Corinthians that, that we need to remember that as being a people of faith of the church of the living God, we're a separate people. It doesn't mean that there's not nice people out there that would make a nice husband or wife, but if you don't have the faith connection, you're not to be connecting. That's what the Bible teaches. When Moses led Israel in the land, he said, you don't give your son to their daughters, you don't take your daughters for their sons. Because we're a separate people. We're a people of the faith. Not a faith, but the faith. And Paul would write that about not un being unevenly yoked. So this was something that was already set up in a, in a book of Genesis. But you know what? She was probably good looking. And he just wanted to marry her. And he wanted to marry her for all the wrong reasons. His eye went in the wrong direction. <clears throat> and it says she conceived and bare a son and, and he named him her. Which means watcher. And she conceived again and bare a son and she called his name Onan. All right. So now she's getting power in the house. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chesbiz and she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, uh, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. Okay, we're going to watch that, that there's some, you know, this is a non-Jewish convert we're going to find out because she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so the Messiah was going to come down through her line. But there was some problems here with the husband that he had, she had, and it said, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. He took him out. And Judah said unto Onan, Go into thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. So now it was his responsibility. What would happen is the next in line would marry that widow, and the first child would be really take on the father's name, the, the, the dead husband's name. And Onan knew not that his seed should be his, so he knew it wasn't going to be his kid. It came to pass that when he went to his brother's wife, that he didn't, he went into her for pleasure only and didn't fulfill what God had asked her to do, spell on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother and the thing which he did displease the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. So we see two sons coming underneath judgment all because of the father's compromise. Man, guys, we got a high position. 
We've got a real high position. And it's not just with Judah's sons. Remember Eli's sons? They were sons of the devil. Remember Lot's children that got left inside him? Yeah, he got two daughters out, but he had, he had uh, sons-in-laws and daughters in there. In, in, in the common denominator, all three, Judah, Eli, and uh, Lot. Thank you. The father chose the path of compromise, and the kids paid the price. So Judah said to Tamar, basically says, hey, go back to your dad's house, dress like a widow. When my third son is old enough, I'll bring him up. And he had no intention of bringing him. You already took out two. You ain't getting this one. So he goes up to sheep shearing time. It was time to celebration. It was told Tamar in verse 13, your father-in-law goes up to Timnah to shear the sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is the by of Timnah. And she saw that she saw it was grown, so he should have been brought to her, her as his husband. And, and Jacob had no, or Judah had no intention of doing that. She was not given unto him as wife. And Judah saw her, and he thought her to be a harlot because she covered her face. And he strikes a deal with, a, with her, thinking she's a harlot. Okay? Set up a harlot date. She basically tells him, well, what are you going to give me? And he goes, well, I'll give you a kid of the flock. Well, that's fine, but I don't have the kid here, so what are you going to give me until you give me that kid? And, and he gives her a bunch of his possessions. Gives her a signet, a ring, a bracelet, and a staff. All right? So they do what harlots do. And... When Judah came back with a kid looking for her to get his stuff back, she was nowhere to be found. So we're going to see in verse 22, and they returned to Judah, and they said, we can't find her. And also the men of the place said that there is no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let, it, let, let her take it to her, the stuff that I gave her, lest, lest we be ashamed because of what he did. And, and I sent this kid to go and, and found her not. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said this, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Oh, how, how bad our sin looks on other people, isn't it? And you know what he's basically saying? Let's incinerate her. Put that, put that in modern terms. When you get upset or mad about something and you think they can go to hell. Same thing. Same thing. But he's getting a dose of humbling coming. And when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, I'm with child. Discern whose they are. And he, she's got his ring, bracelets, and staff. And Judah acknowledged them. Uh, and and she, he, she, he said, she's been more righteous than I. Then there's a wrestling match in the womb again. And, and these two sons are wrestling. But the big thing here is God's grace enables any of our life purposes in spite of our failures. And in the lineage of Jesus Christ, there would be these pagans, even these harlots, even an adulteress. Because God uses instruments to show off the depths of his grace in people's lives. So that's my synopsis of 38. We're going to get into 39 now. All right, it says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt. You know, he finds himself in a place where, you know, he was just brought down. 
and uh, you know, it's so easy when when you've lost control of your life and just unforeseen circumstances that you didn't create, that you didn't want, all of a sudden they have the upper hand in your life. And what I love about this is what can you hold on to? You can hold on to the fact that when circumstances in your life are out of control, that God is still in control. That the throne room of God has not been vacated just because your circumstances went awry. Three times in this chapter, it's going to say that the Lord was with Joseph. We've got to ask ourselves, is that good enough for me? To know the Lord's with me. Because when you're brought down, that's when your spouse can go off the rails. That's when you can get a bad prognosis from your doctor. You can get an unfair termination. You can get ill will and lies about you by other people. But the key is if you're brought down, to be brought down on the outside... You don't allow yourself to be brought down on the inside. Now, Egypt, we recognize that Egypt was a center of capital of paganism, idolatry, immorality. There was no compass of God whatsoever. Not the true and living God, but there's going to be. <laughs> there's going to be. And that might be why you're at the very company you work at, the very factory that you work at, there's no God compass there until you walk through the door. Then you're the compass and the light for those individuals. Now think about him, okay? They speak a different language. He's alone, isolated. Think about his insecurities, feels concerns. Think about what's going on inside of him, missing his dad, uh, hurt by his brothers. And the guy refuses to get bitter because at the end we're going to see it just made him better. Joseph's life, two paths, bitter or better. Now, Potiphar here was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. And it says here that he bought him out of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither, and the Lord... He was with Joseph three times in this chapter. Now, look at this isn't, I don't know what to say, man. This is just a difficult chapter. This poor guy really goes through it. But, but you know what he had alongside him? He had a faithful God, and so don't you. Same God. We serve Joseph's God, the God of the Hebrews, a Jewish Messiah God, Jesus Christ, who promised never to leave us or forsake us. And he was a prosperous man. Okay? I want to think about where your mind runs when you think of prosperity. A lot of times we're thinking bigger, better, nicer, newer. When I look through the lens of Scripture of prosperity, I think of what 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, that we're to go from glory to glory. I think about what Romans chapter 1 tells us, that we prosper from faith to faith. I think about what Psalm 84 tells us, that we prosper from strength to strength. The inward prosperity that we should all hunger for first is priority in our, in our lives as God's ambassadors for the short vapor while we're here on the earth. And we see that God prospered him. And he was in the house of his 
master the Egyptian, okay? So he's got a pagan master. It's very important as, as we look at this because it says, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. So obviously, the attention of all the good in Joseph's life was going to Joseph's God. And I think Joseph made sure it happened that way. Now, if you're happy with the way that I'm doing things here for you, Potiphar, I've been praying to my God about how to bless you. I've been praying about the situations. I believe he was a visual witness and an audible witness. Because Potiphar knew that it was assigned, all the good was assigned to the God that Jacob served. Joseph served. And it says here, and Joseph found grace in his sight. Look at experiential grace. This is what Joseph experienced from, from Potiphar. He experienced experiential grace. This guy was the, the head dude in, in, in Pharaoh's cabinet to, to make sure he was his bodyguard and took care of all the things that would take place politically uh, for Pharaoh. And, and what do we see here? He's a pagan man, but this experiential grace motivated Joseph's service to his master. We've been saved by grace. And we've got a wonderful master. And because our master is so wonderful and because grace was there, I believe that experiential grace is what should motivate our service to our master. And I think the case point for this is one of the greatest servants in the Bible, Paul the Apostle, who a hundred times... In his epistles, a hundred plus times in his epistles would reference this term, God's grace. It's God's unconditional, unmerited favor because he never forgot about it. And look at the service it fueled for Paul the Apostle. Look what he was willing to go into headlong, dangerous, hazard in his life because people need to hear about Jesus and that's what God had called him to. I believe that when he thought about God's grace, he never forgot about Saul of Tarsus, even though now he was Paul the Apostle. The pre-converted life. That there was nothing in that life that earned salvation. It was all the unearned merit of the goodness of God pursuing him. The light. The voice. Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Taken to the house of Judas at the street called Straight. Being greeted by Ananias, who with trepidation went to fulfill what God had asked him to do and, and, and to pray over Saul of Tarsus. And he greets him, his brother Saul, new identity. And then the blinders fall off. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Grace right to the end. And at the end he said, I'm now ready. The time for my departure is at hand. And he concludes the final statement that he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4. By saying, grace be with you. 
if the unearned, look at, you know what I earned? I earned a one-way ticket to hellfire forever. That's what I earned. What I was given was one-way ticket of salvation through Jesus Christ to heaven forever. That's grace. What I earned versus what I got. And it's this grace and this love of God that needs to be the catalyst and the motivation of our service to him. If Joseph could do it for an Egyptian pagan master, how could we not do it for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the most wonderful master? So he finds grace in his sight to serve him. To serve him. And he made him overseer. The, the household manager, the steward over his house in all that he had. What does that say about the character of this individual that, look it, I trust you to make every decision for me. Here's all my passwords. Here's all my bank accounts. I trust you can relay a message to my wife without flirting with her. How did he prosper? I'll tell you what, right now, Christians, we should be the best witness at work in what we do. And I just think it bears repeating. I've said it before. Show up early to work. Treat people you work with great value or great respect, value, and love. Stay off your phone. Speak with thanksgiving and gratefulness about the job you have. Identify the things in those who are over you that you're grateful for, and don't be afraid to give them a little bit more than your hours. Come home tired because you worked. Don't be a thief. Don't be a slug. Don't be a complainer. Own your responsibility. You were called to be the light at your workplace. That's your mission field. Let people see something indifferent in you so like Joseph, they can know it's not you, it's the God that you serve. Because no one else does it that way. It's an opportunity for God's people to do it that way. So he, he uh, he gave him full responsibility in his house for Joseph. Think about it. I mean, all right, you're be honest. Okay, you're there. I'm thinking, okay, I've got some pull now, man. I've got to come up with my escape plan because I've got a revenge plan to carry out. Well, find those brothers. We're going to talk. You don't see that. You know what you see him doing? You see him growing where he's at. This is the Joseph way. Embrace where you're at. Make the best of your life situation that's currently out of your control in a way that, that your God would be known with a heart. You refuse 
to allow to become contaminated with vengeance, with anger, with bitterness, with resentment. Joseph had fortitude in his soul that would claim, I choose to honor you with no conditions attached. That's someone that knows the true and living God because that's the service he's worthy of. So he left all into Joseph's hand. He knew not what he had except the bread which he did eat, and Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored, which is going to get him into trouble. But we'll look at that next week. But here's the bottom line, right? 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it's required in stewards, all right, that a man be found faithful. It literally means a manager. And, and I think for us as believers that we need to remember that sometimes we got to revisit and renew a vision of what stewardship is. What I mean by that is the Psalms tells us, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein, Okay. So who do we belong to? We belong to him. Who's your spouse belong to? Belongs to God. Who do your children belong to? Belongs to God. That sweet thing you're driving out in the parking lot, who's that blood? That's God's. We're just stewards over it. Spouse, children, time, finances, whatever it might be, that we got to have a, a biblical lens view of life and how to do it right. So we're got a break there because there's a lot to talk about because the, the time of testing is coming for Joseph. And when we step into times of temptation, times of temptation reveal truth of character. It's not always about avoiding it, but it's persevering through it. Times of testing are going to reveal truth of character. You can all stand. You know, it's so important for us. I think with Joseph, I think there's so many things that we can see about his life to some degree we can identify with a little bit. Or at least, at least in different seasons of life or different circumstances that you might be facing. And, and I think what's so wonderful for us is that we see this guy that, like I said earlier, he, he didn't have Exodus through Revelation to glean from. All he had was the life he was living and everything that went backwards till it said, in the beginning, God created. Now, his brothers made the mistake of not learning from Cain and Abel, and they made foolish decisions. You and I should be able to look as an example like this so that we can make wise decisions. God wants to bless you because he's with you. God wants to bless others through you. And prosperity isn't always in what you gain in the material realm, but it's who you're developing to be in the spiritual realm. And at times we've got to be honest with ourselves and say, am I prospering? Am I growing in my relationship with the Lord where the fact glory to glo that I'm glorifying him to a greater degree today than I was last year? Am I growing in the faith? Is my trust in God really growing roots that are deeper and deeper? Am I going from strength to strength? Am I more 
Am I less self-reliant and more Holy Spirit-reliant in my life? Because that's where God wants to prosper us. I've heard it said before, for every hundred men that can handle adversity, only one of those can handle prosperity. And that was a reference to the material realm. Make sure that you're embracing where you're at today, knowing that God is with you and doing it his way. Learn from his brothers, learn from him. The majority go the wrong direction, right? Ten of those brothers doing the wrong thing. You got one guy doing the right thing. Thank God for the one. Thank God for the one that came and did life right 2,000 years ago and died on a cross to be the one way. Truth in a life. Father, we bless you. I thank you for the souls that are here today, the families represented here today, Father. We're living in the end of days. There's such a seduction going on to cause us to drift far from you, but I pray, Father, that we'd set anchor and we'd drift closer to you. We thank you for examples like this in the Bible that we can glean so much from, from the life of Joseph. And I just ask God that, that you would take the truths out of the scripture and that you plant them deep in our heart and that when we come at a crossroads of something, that maybe something right here, we would remember about you, your word, or a character, an example that you've given us, such a wonderful character like Joseph. I ask your richest blessing, Lord, and I pray for the open doors this week for each of us because we've come here today to do what we've done to go do the ministry according to what you've told us in Ephesians 4. And I pray we'd be faithful with that. We bless you, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at it. If you need prayer.